Tim, have you ever heard of the term cognitive dissonance? You know I'm not into politics. <laughs> cognitive dissonance is when pieces of our lives no longer make sense. Beliefs we always held true seem to be false, so we have to reorder our way of thinking. <laughs> Are you saying a Rambler could hook bumpers with a Ferrari? It's very possible. No, no, no. If what you say is true, then everything I believe is false. No, no, Tim, that's not necessary. Let me go with this for a minute. Let me go, okay? <laughs> this means that maybe cars aren't the most important thing in the world. Oh, oh no, wait a minute. The, 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 the opera's more manly than football? Most expensive noise, a podcast featuring mostly true adventures in the world of opera, with your roast, Adam Flowers, and now, the orchestra tunes, the mezzo-soprano Itzel Cheeseburger, the lights dim, e the curtain raises on, episode 2, Falling in Love. Uh, Dad. Uh, what? Can you write a note to my teacher explaining that our TV set is busted? Well, our TV isn't busted. No, shut up, Martin. I'm trying to uh, watch Dad, the fight. Dad, if our TV set isn't busted, then I have to write a homework assignment on the opera that just started on PBS. Act 1 The Amazing Adventures of Marjorie Booth, Opera Spy in Hitler's Germany Saturday of Marjorie Booth, the opera singer who was born in Weigen and who sang at the Berlin State Opera during the war. Miss Booth was formerly married to a German brewer, Dr. Egon Strom, but the marriage was dissolved. After singing on the continent, she made her first appearance at Covent Garden in 1936, and when the war began, she was singing in Berlin. She remained there, and the Germans believed that she had pro-Nazi sympathies. Her sympathies, however, were with the Allies, and when she sang at a British prisoner of war camp, she passed on to the camp leader information she had obtained from several Nazi officials. As a result, several escapes were successfully organized. When the camp leader, Batterley Quartermaster Sergeant Owen Brown, was suspected by the Gestapo of complicity, Miss Booth took charge of his documents. After the war, she said she never let them out of her sight. And when she sang on the stage, she used to hide them in her costume. Manchester Guardian, April 14th, 1952. Revealed. British opera singer turned spy who performed for Hitler with secret documents hidden in her underwear. By Vanessa Allen for the Daily Mail, 9 September 2010.
Marjorie Booth led a double life inside Nazi Germany, where she performed for Hitler and his henchmen while smuggling the Third Reich's secrets to British intelligence. She helped British prisoners of war to send coded messages back to spy chiefs in London, and even performed for the Fuhrer with ciphers hidden in her costume. A British army officer shoved the secret papers down her dress at the Berlin State Opera just moments before she went on stage to sing for Hitler and his cohorts. Discovery would have meant an almost certain death for the mezzo-soprano, who endured regular questioning by the Gestapo. But Hitler was so taken by her performances that he once visited her dressing room and later sent her 200 red roses wrapped in a sash with a swastika on it. The army officer who used the singer to send his coded messages, John Brown, was hailed as a hero after the war when his evidence was used in the treason trial of William Joyce, the traitor Lord Haw Haw. But Miss Booth's bravery has gone largely unrecognized, and calls for her to receive a posthumous honor have gone unheeded. Marjorie Booth was born in Wigan in 1905 and joined the town's operatic society as a teenager. By 1936, she had sung at Covent Garden and even briefly traveled to Hollywood to appear in a film version of Aida. Later that year, she met and quietly married Dr. Egon Strom, the son of a wealthy German brewery family, and moved to Germany. Her first meeting with Hitler was thought to have been in 1933, when she was chosen to carry the Holy Grail in the spectacular finale to the Wagner opera Parsifal at the Bayreuth Festival. He burst into her dressing room and told her how elegant and lovely he thought her, and sent her the basket of 200 red roses the next day with a card signed simply Adolf. When the war began, she was singing with the Berlin State Opera and was later allowed to perform for British prisoners of war at a camp in Genshagen near Berlin. She would announce to her audience, I am Marjorie Booth from Weigen. She visited British POWs at Stalag 111D, known as a propaganda holiday camp for British officers who the Nazis hoped to use as double agents. John Brown was transferred there in 1943 and convinced his captors he was willing to work for Germany. He used their trust to send coded messages home in his letters and also to pass secret documents to Miss Booth to send back to MI9, the intelligence branch tasked with unmasking traitors. Ironically, the opera singer's links to the Nazi regime were so well known that she was accused of collaborating against Britain and turning traitor against her country. In his book, Endurance Vile, Mr. Brown wrote, she was initially given personal assurances from Hitler and Goebbels that they would, quote, deal with the matter personally, end quote, if she was insulted because of her British birth. But when Mr. Brown's secret work for Britain was discovered by the Nazis, Miss Booth was arrested and tortured by the Gestapo. She kept silent and was eventually released, and she later escaped Britain during an air raid and fled to Bavaria, where she was picked up by the Americans. After the war, she divorced her German husband and moved to America, where she died from cancer in 1952. If you are like me and you're anxious to find out more information about Marjorie Booth, take heart. There is a film in pre-production called Marjorie Booth, The Spy in the Eagle's Nest, starring Stephen Fry 
and some other uh, very talented British actors whose names you might not recognize, but whose faces you definitely would. At present, there is no release date. Act Two. Falling in love. Y'all ready for this? Mike Monagle, Jake Lacey, Jake Lonerdahl, Patrick Phelan, and myself are crowded into my family's living room. We're watching a freshly minted VHS cassette of The Untouchables, starring Kevin Costner, Robert De Niro, and Sean Connery. I rode my bike to Adventureland Video after the bus had dropped me off from another day of ninth grade at Holmes Junior High School. The autumn air is growing crisper and midterms are imminent. Friday nights at Adventureland start to get busy around 5 p.m., videos on the new arrivals rack go fast. So I hopped on my bike as soon as I got home from the bus and I picked up a copy of The Untouchables, which had just arrived that week. My mom wasn't too crazy about us watching an R-rated movie, but I convinced her that the violence and profanity were of a historical nature and we were practically getting a history lesson. I don't think she bought it, but she gave me the okay. Monagle had been the one who told us we had to see this movie. He'd seen it with his brothers when it was in the theaters and couldn't stop going on about it. The Ennio Morricone score kicks in as the movie begins, and copious amounts of Dr. Pepper flow and popcorn gets shoveled into our mouths. We settle in for what is promising to be a great movie. About two-thirds of the way in, Sean Connery is in his apartment, alone. One of Al Capone's men is trying to break in and kill him. The camera switches back and forth between this and De Niro as Al Capone at the opera. Sitting in his box and watching Leon Cavallo's I Pagliacci. Yes, the one with the crazy crying clown. We see Connery trying to trick Al Capone's gangster. And it shifts back and forth from there to the opera house. On the stage of the opera house is a man dressed as a clown. And at first, you can't really hear the music because it's in the background of the audio from Connery's apartment. But just then, as Connery is getting shot, riddled with bullets from Frank Nitti's Thompson machine gun, you see a fade-in of the opera. And it's the highlight of the aria Vesti la Giubba. The clown is singing about something that can tell is important, but I have no idea what he's saying in Italian. But at that moment, the ground opens up underneath me and I start falling. I start falling in love with this amazing sound, a sound bigger than anything I'd ever heard. Up until that moment, I mostly listened to Motown, pop music that was on the radio at the time, hip-hop, a lot of East Coast hip-hop, Led Zeppelin, classic rock. I liked the idea of classical music. I loved film scores, but I'd never heard anything like this. It was so big. It was so much bigger than words, and I knew that even though I couldn't understand what was being said, I understood more than what was being said. 
I was addicted and I knew it. I knew it in the moment. I knew that something had changed for me. I had no idea what it would lead to, but I fell in love with that sound. I tried to act cool. I'm sure on the outside I looked like nothing was different, but I knew I was different. And the next day, I went to my mom. We couldn't just search for things online then. We had to actually ask people, especially our parents, for things. And I said, Mom, in the movie The Untouchables, there's a scene where Al Capone's at the opera. And it sounded really interesting. And it's this clown. And she said, oh, Pagliacci, yeah. Did you like that? I said, yeah, I liked it a lot. Is there any way you could get me the music from that opera? And she kind of looked at me. She said, sure. So a couple days later, she got me this cassette, Laser Light Records, Placido Domingo, and it was basically bootlegs of his live recordings from the 60s when he was really young. It has him singing Trovatore and Lohengrin and the Siciliana from Cavalleria Rusticana. And there at the end of side one, Vesti la Giubba from Pagliacci. And I would listen to it in my room over and over and over again. I, I could not get enough of it. I also couldn't get enough of uh, the Siciliana either from Cavalleria. And I would sing along. And within a year, the World Cup of Soccer in Rome was taking place. And there was the Three Tenors concert. And what had started as a lit match became a raging inferno. And if it wasn't for that, I don't know what I'd be doing right now. I don't know what my vocation and my profession would be. I don't know if I'd be a musician. But that was the moment, that movie, The Untouchables, when opera grabbed me, practically strangling me at times, and would not let me go. And it became the soundtrack to my life. I am Alex Tate, and this is the sound of my voice. Alex Tate is a resident and native of Oakland, he graduated in 2007 from Pepperdine University, where he obtained his degree in music theory and composition with a main emphasis in vocal performance and a minor emphasis in jazz piano. He's a multi-talented, multi-instrumentalist, is as comfortable in the world of opera as he is in the world of jazz, and he's also a very accomplished vocal percussionist. My first experience with opera the experience that really moved me first was when I was in college and I played the role of Rodolfo in just the first act scene work at a summer program. And the experience of being able to just play on stage in front of people and, and be accepted for that, be praised for it, to pretend to be someone 
to uh, pretend to be something that you're not, to pretend to be in a situation that isn't real and to do it successfully in a way that's convincing. That was the most compelling thing for me. Actually getting to experience like being a child again, you know, when you play make-believe when you're a kid. That was the most compelling part for me. What got me hooked. Hello, my name is Robert Hoyt, and I'm a tenor. Robert Hoyt received his Bachelor of Music in Opera Performance at University of Iowa. He is ambidextrous in that he performs musical theater and opera, switching back and forth with equal facility. He has performed in theaters and opera houses across America. I was young, I was in college actually, and I had just basically grown up just doing musical theater and only new musical theater, not very much classical music except for choral. And uh, I uh, went to a college where they had, uh, when I was auditioning for voice teachers, they basically said, oh sure, we have a very th a thriving musical theater department, you should come here. And, uh, and uh, I liked the voice teachers, so I was like, you know what, why not? And I went. Uh, and it turned out that they had a thriving theater department and a thriving opera department, music department, but not really musical theater. They really did uh, operas, although they did do their operas all in English. And so my first opportunity to do something there was actually the circus manager in The Bartered Bride, uh, which was in English. And I had an absolute blast doing it. It just seemed, basically, it seemed like a little bit more complex musical theater, a little bit more challenging, but really the same basic uh, tenets, you know. Uh, so all of the skills that I had bringing forth, you know, from musical theater, I feel I felt like I could use, uh, especially since it was the, a language that I understood. Uh, and I, I to this day, I think, uh, I really find that the operas that I sing in English are the ones that I enjoy the best. Uh, actually, my first professional gig out of college was uh, of Mice and Men at Opera San Jose, where I actually met Adam, and it's still to this day one of my favorite experiences. Well, you want to talk about uh, musical theater turned up to 11. I mean, that was really uh, something else. So now I go back and forth, opera and musical theater, but, uh, but that experience really opened the door for me, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I haven't done Bartered Bride since then, but I sure would love to give that one another, uh, another visit uh, in case somebody wants to do it. Uh, definitely not in Czech, though. Don't even try to make me sing in Czech. I ain't going to do it. Hello, my name is Andy Truitt, and this is the sound of my sick voice. I'm an half of a cold. Hi, my name is William O'Neill and this is the sound of my voice. And hi, my name is Phil Pickens, and this is the sound of my voice. Andy Truitt, William O'Neill, and Phil Pickens are all regular chorus members at San Francisco Opera. They are full-time members of the chorus, and they perform in every single show that requires chorus at that company, with some very few exceptions. Andy Truitt is a excellent tenor. Um, he is an alumni of the Music Academy of the West. William O'Neill is originally from Rhode Island and is a wonderful bass baritone. Phil Pickens, native of South Carolina, is a fantastic tenor 
who has sung professionally all over the United States in opera, choral music, was a member of the Chicago Lyric Opera Chorus, and is now a full-time member of San Francisco Opera Chorus. I remember listening to an audio tape, cassette tape, with my dad. I probably was about five, four or five at the time. And it was uh, that first Three Tenors CD. It was not a concert that they did, did, did together. It was just uh, a compilation of, of, of live recordings of the three of them. And uh, my dad was playing it in, in the house. And uh, what caught my attention was uh, Vesti La Juba, sung by Pavarotti. Um, and that's uh, the big famous aria from I Pagliacci by, by, I want to say by Cavalieri Sicano. <laughs> Thank you, by Leon Cavallo. And, um, and so um, uh, right away I was, I kind of noticed the voice, the voice, his voice caught my attention because it's so beautiful. But then when he does that big laugh, which is the Caruso laugh that Caruso started, that caught my attention and I asked my dad right away, wait, what's going on? Why is he laughing? And he explained to me about him being a, a clown and, uh, and then it definitely struck me as really interesting that this clown, whose clowns are supposed to be happy and funny, that he was having this heavy emotional moment. And it really seemed very interesting to me and really neat. But I think really at the core of it was that how, just how beautiful Pavarotti's voice was. And I really remember like a, a physical reaction to hearing his voice and just my heart swelling up and just, just really enjoying the sound of that man's voice and uh shortly after that not definitely not the same day but you know i'd say within a month you know and we'd been playing my dad been playing quite a bit of opera in the house i remember one afternoon we were going to go to the movies and that we were getting i was waiting for them in the living room and i remember trying to sing like Pavarotti. the music wasn't on but i just tried to sing and i could totally sing with vibrato even as a kid it was probably completely fake Verado, but I remember telling my dad, hey dad, I'm gonna be an opera singer when I grow up. And he's like, oh yeah, let me hear you sing. And I remember singing for him and being going, wow, that's pretty good. So um, I didn't really think that was gonna come true, but alas, it did. So <laughs> let's hear from uh, Mr. William O'Neill here, who has a great story about us, about ninjas attacking uh, performance at Boston Lyric Opera. Wow. Isn't it ninjas? That, that, well, uh, or singers. It was, oh, it was singers. Singers, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, I would love to see uh, an opera about ninjas, though. I think uh, <laughs> if anybody's listening who produces opera, ninjas. Oh, wait, there's, that turn bring... dot. there's that turn dot. With, oh, they have a ninja with, tour dot. That'd be great. Well, there's a turn dot with, with Domingo from China. And oh, like, oh, wow. And there's like all these ninjas see? that like change the set and stuff. <laughs> see, that, that's what opera needs is more ninjas. <laughs> well, no, said, uh, well what said. I was going to say was. Um, I, uh, my first real opera experience, you know, when I, when I was a kid, I, I wasn't really so into it. I liked musicals, you know, but opera seemed a little bit, uh, you know, to me, but I actually found opera, um, much more appealing when I actually saw it for the first time. Uh, my dad came home one day, uh, and I, and he had tickets to the final dress rehearsal for Tosca at Boston Lyric Opera, and this was in 97. Uh, and I decided, you know, I just started going out with this girl and I was like, I asked her if she wanted to go see an opera and neither of us had ever been, but we were like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So we, um, so we all went up and, uh, and went and I remember just the very first moments of the opera.
when you know the curtain opened and the music started and you saw this incredible set on stage and and the and glorious music of Puccini played by a live orchestra and uh, and the voices that night and the you know it's, were just extraordinary and how incredible that felt and how uh, moving and touching uh, it was um, and and of course I was really struck by the role of Scarpia which you know being having you know a, a lower voice at that time I thought oh this role is such an awesome role and one that I would love to to sing someday uh, for myself. Um, I remember though the only disappointing thing about the evening was how it ended for me was was when she jumped off the roof of the uh, Castel Sant'Angelo and I remember thinking to myself like how it, it seemed a little anticlimactic when she kind of kind of sort of you know fell off the edge uh, you know, it, it almost seemed slightly comical to me, but uh, you know, you almost thought like, <laughs> is she gonna like bounce back up or something? <laughs> like, like what? That's happened to that's before. Apparent, that's apparently happened. Yeah, it has yeah. happened. We've considered yes. bounce yeah, back that, up. That's that's what, yeah. I, I've certainly heard that, and uh, and it was you know, but but really like just seeing this incredible production of Tosca really hooked me, and I you know actually went to go see several more shows in the next year at the Opera House and oh, had, you know, a uh, connection to get, you know, free dress rehearsal tickets, which was pretty great for a poor, you know, poor soul like myself, uh, <laughs> poor starving artist such as myself. So uh, it was it was good stuff and, it's, you know, I didn't think it was what I'd be doing today, but here I am singing opera today. <laughs> this uh, We had this really amazing professor, Bill Bridges, who uh, was in charge of music appreciation and all sorts of other classes, and he he took this group of music students, I, it was like an hour, an hour and a half away from Anderson to see this production of The Marriage of Figaro. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was some little touring company and uh, no one really knew what to expect. And the music started and I recognized the overture immediately because I'd heard it on so many commercials, mm. I guess. Oh, really? And the music is amazing. And then, of course, I recognized, you know, Figaro's big aria, non uh, da 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 And I thought, oh my God, I know this. I know this is great. <laughs> but the thing that I think that, that really made it for all these, these, these wonderful little Southern Baptist students was that the woman that was playing the countess was the understudy. So it was somebody new in the cast that, that wasn't supposed to be there. And so we were like rooting for her to make sure that she was going to do well. Awesome. And she was awesome. It's, she really was uh, awesome. Right but we, we really enjoyed the whole opera. And uh, I'm sure there were some nice little cuts throughout. But we, we really loved it. And, and mm. later when we went to some little greasy spoon restaurant to eat, we all sat around talking about it. I mean, excitedly talking mm. about it. The story itself, the music, you know, and how everything fit together so well. And, uh, you know, years later when I look back on that, I, I, I remember chuckling to myself and thinking, oh, my God, there I was sitting at a table full of Southern Baptist teenagers excitedly talking about opera. Who'd have thunk it? So. Really cool. <laughs> Before you had gone, Phil, I mean, did they give you in, did, did, had you guys heard about that that, that that was a Beaumarchais play? And did you know who Beaumarchais was and the significance of this play or anything I like that? I am sure that this particular professor told us everything okay. about it because he was... He was very knowledgeable, very creative, and, uh, and, and I'm sure he told us about it. If not then, the next time we met for whatever class it was, I'm sure that we, okay. we discussed right it on. at length. He was, he was really a great guy. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, so my, my first opera experience was, 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 you know, quite wonderful. I'm Tamara Senikidze, and this is 
the sound of my voice. Tamara Sanikidze gave her first performance with the Georgian Symphony Orchestra at age eight and has since appeared as soloist and chamber musician throughout the Republic of Georgia, Russia, Europe, Asia, and the Americas. Dr. Sanikidze is an official pianist for Placido Domingo's World Opera Competition Operalia and has partnered with such luminaries as Isabel Leonard, Quinn Kelsey, Elizabeth Futral, Nicole Cabell, Leo Crocetto, Nadine Sierra, Evan Hughes, and Amanda Majeski in New York City's Carnegie Hall, Steinway Hall, and other prestigious venues, including the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Sanikidze has made several recordings for the Excelsior label, and her performances have been broadcast on NPR as well as Georgian and Russian national television and radio. She is a member of the faculty at the Butler School of Music at the University of Texas at Austin. She holds a Doctor of Musical Arts degree from the University of Maryland, College Park. Sometimes in middle 80s, I think 86, 87, I was probably seven or maybe um, maybe seven and a half. Um, the movie Traviata made it to Soviet Union. Uh, for famous Zeffirelli movie with Placido Domingo and Teresa Stratus. It was hot summer day. I was alone with my mom in a city while my sister and father were already in a village on vacation. So my mom took me to the movies and I thought it was just another normal movie. And then when the music started and they started singing and this opening scene of Traviata, I could not believe what I was seeing and what I was listening. I've never in my life heard or seen anything more beautiful. The whole movie went, actually the whole opera went in a second as far as I'm concerned. And when I came out, I asked mom, can we go again and again and again? And I think I drugged her to see that movie at least 10 times, maybe more. A week or two later, when we went to a village, to see my sister and my father to rejoin them on vacation, I sang to Nino Traviata as it was stored in my head in my made-up Italian from the beginning to the end, including all the cadences and all the coloraturas. And in my mind, I was sounding just as beautiful as Teresa and as Placido. Well, anyways, Nino looked at me like I finally lost it. That was the time when I fell in love with opera, and that love has never gone away. curtain falls on another episode of the Most Expensive Noise podcast. Special thank you to Alex Tate, Robert Hoyt, Andy Truitt, Bill O'Neill, Phil Pickens, and Tamara Sanikidze. Your homework is to listen or watch any recording or film of Placido Domingo singing the role of Canio in Leon Cavallo's opera I Pagliacci. I don't know if there's a video of it, but I recommend listening to a recording. It's a live recording of Domingo at San Francisco Opera, I believe in 78 or 79. 
and he sings the roles of Turidu in Cavalleria and the role of Canio in Pagliacci at San Francisco Opera on the same night. So that is your homework. Please do it. You will be tested. Thank you very much for listening. Please like, share, subscribe, rate, tell a friend. If you don't like it, keep it to yourself. Please check show notes for links and further information about topics and people discussed in this episode, including the links to your homework. And uh, we'll see you when we do this all over again at the opera. La Commedia è finita! Yeah.